Hello, everyone. Welcome to the first edition of the South-South Fellowship Podcast, where we will be discussing the creation of coalitions for education reforms. My name is João Pedro Caleiro, and I am a writer-researcher at the Lehman Foundation Program at the Blavatnik School of Government at the University of Oxford. This program will be divided in two parts. In this first part, we will tackle the case of a coalition, which was put together to reform one important aspect of education in Brazil. The name of this coalition is Movimento pela Base, the movement for the base. Their main goal was to create a framework for education, known as BNCC, which stands for National Common Curricular Base in Portuguese. Remember those two names, Movimento pela Base and the BNCC, for we will be using them throughout this podcast. This material is based on a case study produced by the Case Center on Public Leadership in the Blavatnik School in Oxford and is available in the Library of Global Public Goods. But please keep in mind that this material is not to be seen as an endorsement of one initiative or another, but as a starting point for larger themes of hopefully productive conversations for education policymakers in the Global South. Now, before we tell the story of this coalition, it's important to understand that the Brazilian education system was struggling when they first convened. Domestic testing in 2011 showed that in the fifth year of schooling, only 40% of students were at a level of Portuguese considered to be adequate. The rate was even lower for mathematics, with only 36% of students at an adequate level. And there was huge inequality too, with learning levels varying wildly across the country. Now, Let's hear from Alice Ribeiro, the executive director of the Movement for the Base. She will take us back to the genesis of this coalition on a trip to Yale University in the United States. In 2013, a diverse group of experts, government officials, and third sector organizations were convened by the Lehman Foundation to identify common concerns they had in basic education in Brazil. It became clear that they had a common understanding that Brazil should urgently focus on improving both quality and equality in basic education, and that the construction of national learning standards was an important strategy for that, as national and international evidence showed. It is important to highlight that the Brazilian constitution established in 1988 and our main national educational law established in 1996 already set out that Brazil should count on national learning standards, but they haven't been built by then. Now, it's important to note, this initial coalition was already very diverse, with people from all around the political spectrum. They did not agree on everything, and sometimes did not like each other. In fact, Denis Misny, the CEO of the Lehman Foundation, remembered how one guest on landing in the United States and seeing the other guests arrive, refused to board the bus to the seminar. But according to some of those present, the trip ended up igniting a sense of common purpose. Ana Penido, the director of the Lehman Center in Sobral, and also a member of Movimento Pela Base, spoke about how and why this group came together at this particular juncture in time, followed by Alice again on the same topic. The trip to Yale was crucial to strengthen the bonds among the members of Movimento Pela Base. Far from our titles and hats, we had a chance to connect to one another as individuals committed to improve the quality of education in our country. 
Our common purpose has also contributed to create cohesion within the coalition. We all agreed that having high-quality national curriculum standards was essential to improve the quality and equity of public education in Brazil. The objective was clear, feasible, and inspiring enough to make us find common ground and set aside our differences. I would say that the group had a vision that the quality and equality of education in Brazil could be radically improved if national learning standards were built, as it would become a backbone for our educational system. Curricula, teacher training, textbooks and assessments, they would all have to be aligned to the national learning standards, and that would bring a much-needed pedagogical coherence to the entire system. Therefore, the group focused on this vision and were extremely engaged in learning together about national learning standards, both in Brazil and abroad, and helping advance this agenda in an extremely turbulent political scenario. The BNCC coalition had an early victory in 2014, just one year after its creation. At the time, the federal government in Brazil was in the process of drafting the new national education plan. This plan would set priorities for education in the next decade, but it had been stalled in Congress for two years already. When it finally passed, it had an amendment. It required the Ministry of Education to draw a proposal for the BNCC and then consult with the population, with the aim of sending it to the National Council of Education for approval by June 2016. Even though it wasn't clear that the timeline would be respected, It gave the group a horizon and a sense of urgency. But many challenges would arise. Early working groups were commissioned to produce an initial version of the standards, but they were considered by then-Secretary of Basic Education, Manuel Palacios, to be too philosophical, not practical enough. Palacios then made the choice to restart the process from scratch. According to some of its members, the coalition largely believed that there was no simple and easy way of winning. This was a long-term project. Forcing it from the top down or rushing certain parts came with its own set of risks. Anapenido recalls how important it was to always welcome input and new voices, even if that meant delays. I was in charge of leading the working group responsible for bringing a more contemporary vision to the curriculum standards. We wanted the new standards to be committed to the holistic development of the students and incorporate what people used to call the 21st century skills. We had done our research, collected the necessary evidence, and framed solid proposals, but there was no way to embed this concept and skills in the document without first going through a broad process of discussion, alignment, and co-creation with key people and organizations capable of advocating for and legitimizing our cause. So we decided to take the longer, although more sustainable path. And it did work. The general competencies we helped to embed in the new curriculum standards were very well received by the school communities and turned out to be one of the less controversial parts of the document. Some of the challenges faced by the movement were quite unexpected and out of their control such as the change in political winds. In early 2016, for example, Brazil went through an impeachment process 
which removed President Dilma Rousseff. Her vice president, Michel Temer, then took office. The country was deeply divided, and there were staff changes happening all around the federal government. Both Anna and Alice remember this as a very fraught period, which brought divisions within the coalition and serious doubts over its future. We asked both of them to share some memories of how it felt to be within the movement at that time and how they reacted. Let's hear it. Impeachment has heightened our sense of uncertainty about the future of the coalition and the curriculum reform. We had members who were in favor and others who were against the deposition of President Dilma Rousseff. If, on the one hand, we had members of Movimento Pela Base assuming important positions in the Ministry of Education, on the other hand, we knew we would face more resistance from the groups and organizations who rejected the new government. The moment was very tense. We could not express political support for either sides, but needed to continue collaborating with the new administration. The mediation of the executive secretariat was fundamental to maintain the cohesion of the coalition in this moment of polarization. And the strategy outlined by us did not predict this kind of situation. It was very, very delicate. Uh, we had people within the coalition that would um, be very much personally involved and impacted by the, the impeachment process. Uh, but we managed to focus on the kids and on our cause. Something that was very interesting then was the idea that came up from the group to write a joint article for one of Brazil's major newspapers uh, signed by people who, have, uh, who were linked to the main political parties that were involved in the impeachment process. And this article said that we should focus on the kids and that this process could not wait. It should go on regardless what would happen in the political situation. So that was very powerful. Um, some of the main uh, representatives or uh, people from different political backgrounds signed that article and then the whole movement signed that also. Um, and I think although the feeling inside the coalition was very tense, as it was in the country as a whole, um, I think people were very relieved that we had the focus to keep on focusing on the kids, on the policy, and that it should be going on. In the end, the coalition was able to navigate the impeachment process and remain strong, according to the testimony of some of its members. But that meant dealing with internal and external dissent. One specific topic of controversy was the language around sexual orientation and gender identity. When the final drafts of the standards were ready to be sent for a vote in the National Council of Education, the Evangelical Caucus demanded that mentions of sexual orientation and gender identity were eliminated from the document. The Evangelicals were strong in Congress, and they threatened to block President Temer's agenda if they did not get their way. However, advancing a more progressive approach to issues of gender and sexuality was very important for some of the coalition members. The left was strong in the National Council of Education, and they would have limited appetite for new compromises with the new administration. 
The education ministry had a tough choice on balancing those two pressures, and the coalition faced a complicated moment as well. Let's hear Alyssa's memories from this moment. One example was, for instance, in April 2017, when a um, version of the National Learning Standards was released to journalists, and then the, well, they could not um, talk about it because it was just for them to prepare the articles and so on that they would uh, release. And two days later, a different version was published in the Ministry of Education website and no mentions of gender identity or sexual orientation were included anymore. So these mentions were there on the 4th of April and they were not there anymore on the 6th of April. So um, it became a huge discussion, of course, in, in the whole country, but also within the group because we perceived these topics as very important. But at the same time, we recognize that maybe if um, we would push forward or if it would be made, you know, like an issue out of that, um, maybe the, the document as a whole would not go forward in the process. So um, the movement released a note um, saying that it was really a pity and it was a shame that these topics were... Um, excluded from the national learning standards. But at the same time, people understood that we still had to support the process to keep going on. Um, otherwise, the whole document could uh, be discarded. So it would be very important to keep supporting it. In late 2017, the BNCC finally passed. And for the first time, Brazil had a common basic national framework for education. Movimento Pela Base had been successful in achieving that aim, despite all the challenges. But why, when so many coalitions fail? According to Alice Ribeiro, it all starts and ends with the people involved. Well, I think the PNCC coalition was successful mostly because of its people. People were very engaged in the discussions, very engaged in advocating for the creation of national learning standards, And we were very inspired by each other. So I think this was definitely one of the reasons why it was successful. But there were other uh, lessons learned as well. We had the right focus. Um, the right stakeholders were also there. They had uh, built confidence between one another. We had a clear strategy to follow. Communication worked really well between us. Uh, we had to circulate information all the time. Um, it was also a very flexible and resilient uh, coalition, so that was very important as well. So I think that's these are what, some of the reasons why the coalition was successful, especially in the construction phase. And well, <laughs> regarding the main, main lessons I take away from being part of this coalition, um, I would say that um, It has been a real lesson on how we can achieve way more if we do that together, if we do that in a coordinated way. People may have different views on education, on politics and so on. They don't have to be friends, but it's very important that they are allies. So this is very something that is a very important takeaway from for me.
for the second part of our podcast. We took the BNCC case study for a discussion with the leaders of the two civil society organizations that have acted as the local pillars for the South-South program since its start. They are Bela Jamil, the CEO of Idara Etalim Oagahi, the Center for Education and Consciousness in Pakistan, and John Mugo, the Executive Director of the Zizi Afrik Foundation in Kenya. We started out by reflecting on the overall challenges of bringing people together to fight for a common educational cause. What does a strong coalition that delivers results look like? Here is what John and Bela had to say about that. For me, for a coalition to stand strong and deliver results, there are several things that I, I have seen uh, are important. One of these is the common focus, uh, a goal. In this case, when you look at education or in general, it's about the child, the child getting to learn to improve um, the results. So it's not about the coalition builders. The energy is directed to all, towards a common goal, that common cause, the common battle that we all engage for. The other is um, what we bring, the resources, as members of the coalition. Quite often, I think we don't pay attention to that. What is it that we are bringing as our contribution to the coalition? And um, many times you find that when there is deeper reflection about the resources, the capacities, the expertise, um, the, the love and the passion that, that we bring to the coalition, there is a lot that each person brings. And that appreciation of the other person and what they are worth and, and, and what their cost is and the place that they can occupy in the common battle is, is, is quite critical. But the other is just the overall appreciation of diversity. If we were to form a coalition because we all think the same, we all have the same resources to bring, then this would be very weak coalitions. Diversity is a critical ingredient for, for this recipe of, of um, coalition building. That appreciation that we are different, we think differently, and each person has a reason. They have where they are coming from. That appreciation of diversity, I think, is in, in itself very instrumental in, in fostering cohesiveness for coalition building. You know, as John said, that uh, whatever that common core is, the foundation of coalition building, especially in countries like ours, and especially in the political economy space uh, which education occupies, is extremely complex. Uh, and therefore, uh, it's within that complexity when multiple stakeholders um, really uh, hold uh, duty bearers count um, is where the diversity leads to the level of cohesiveness that John was speaking to and all of us aspire for. Because uh, we know that in our political cycles and in our multiple tiers of government, uh, this is not always easy to achieve. And we've seen... Uh, absolutely a fabulous case study from Pakistan, not that it succeeded in what would be called the single national curriculum, 
completely. But what it did was, uh, as a result of this um, coalition building by civil society and independent think tanks and academia, put pressure on the bureaucracy and the parliamentarians uh, to uh, revisit the concept of the single national curriculum, look at aspects of inclusion and diversity, speak about the rights of everyone, including minorities, etc. And the conversation became more complex. As Bela mentioned, working in coalitions can be quite complex and requires making difficult choices, which are well illustrated by the BNCC case. Giving a concession to the right, for example, may anger your allies on the left and vice versa. And it all gets even more complicated when you must face a major political shock in your way, like with the impeachment in Brazil, and societies become ever more polarized. Though this is not part of the BNCC case study, we were intrigued to hear that Pakistan has an experience which provides a useful contrast with the BNCC case. In 2018, the PTI party rose to power in the central level in Pakistan for the very first time, with Prime Minister Imran Khan at the helm. And one of his central policy initiatives was a single national curriculum. The slogan was, quote-unquote, one nation, one curriculum, with a promise to end disparities between public and private schools. But there was more to that story, as Bela will explain to us. So the government, uh, when they came to power in 2018, I mean the PTI government, they immediately announced that within 90 days they will have a new education policy uh, they came up with an education policy framework, a national education policy framework. And in the framework, they had four pillars. The pillars were respectively about out-of-school children, because that was a very big challenge of almost 23 million children being out of school, uniform education system, quality, skills, and higher education. It seemed that what they picked up First and foremost, which, you know, many of us thought would be on out-of-school children, but they picked up on the issue of the curriculum. Was it a political uh, move? Would it satisfy many constituencies? And perhaps it could have been for two reasons. One was that it was addressing heads on the issue of equity, of a divisive system between the government schools, the elite private schools, and also the madrasas, as the three streams of education which made society more unequal. There had been a whole discussion on the apartheid of education between elite and non-elite schools, and non-elite had both government schools as well as madrasas, the religious schools, as part of the non-elite option, but that's what made education unequal. And the second issue, which is a more serious and a more worrying issue, was that of religion. Perhaps the government was playing to the gallery of the religious groups, the groups that often got a lot of votes and a lot of organized votes. They wanted to bring religious reforms in the curriculum so that religion would become part of the mainstream curriculum. They managed to do very well and very swiftly. And that came under the slogan of 
one nation, one curriculum. So let's recap. The new Pakistan government came into power in 2018 and pushed for a single national curriculum. But there was a lot of confusion and suspicion because organized civil society had not really been asking for that policy change beforehand. And it seemed to many like a Trojan horse for a hidden agenda, according to Bela. Then, in April 2022, four years later, came the political shock. Prime Minister Khan was ousted in a no-confidence vote in Parliament. This was just a few months after the single curriculum started to be officially implemented. Now, this doesn't mean that everything changed in the blink of an eye. The new government could not and did not want to simply roll back all the reforms. In the religious aspect of things, for example, it was bound by legislation approved in the last government determining that the Quran should be taught in schools across all provinces. But the new government also had to deal with the mounting opposition by various groups in education. So what they did, according to Bela, was to try to show that they were open to dialogue on deciding where the policy should go next. The new government that came in in 2022 uh, knew well that the previous government had taken a lot of flack because of the single national curriculum. In fact, many other areas of education perhaps had not received the due attention. But at the same time, there was no rolling back of the curriculum. However, there were ways to be able to um, offset the anger of various constituencies by suggesting that, yes, we will li listen to different views and criticisms and try and see how we can review the curriculum, the content, some of the pedagogies, assessments, etc., which were inbuilt, and see if we can satisfy various groups. So I think in many ways, the curriculum piece is a very messy piece in Pakistan. Uh, it's still, although in many ways today, it shows that yes, we have achieved uh, the curriculum reforms from early childhood all the way to grade 12. But this is still an unsettled business um, because there are so many bodies that have to be pleased. And the government says with open arms that, yes, we will listen to this group and listen to the other group. Um, and yet curriculum was meant to be after the 2010 18th Amendment essentially a provincial area of work. So the business is not settled. Um, and I think um, we know that whilst from early years to grade eight, somewhere the textbooks are ready and are being used in schools and in other parts at post middle level and secondary level, they still have to go through a journey. All in all, it seems that it is still a murky business. We still haven't come out of the curriculum conundrum. I think it will take another government and another kind of a resolve in Pakistan to go through what would be seen as a curriculum fit for purpose, a curriculum which really helps children um, overcome the challenges of foundational learning in Pakistan, because that's where we still remain stuck. As Baylor recalled, 
the new government in Pakistan promised to hear different voices and set the single curriculum process in a broader and more inclusive direction. But some found these promises hard to believe, so trust in the process seemed to be wavering. Then, in July 2022, the new Pakistan's education ministry decided to rename the single national curriculum, SNC, as the National Curriculum of Pakistan, NCP, with the minister declaring that the word single caused confusion and killed inclusivity, and that reform should not be forced onto provinces. In summary, you could say that the lack of a strong civil society coalition backing the reform in Pakistan, with broad representation across prominent stakeholders, meant that changes fizzled out as soon as the top leadership changed. The situation is very different from Brazil, where the impeachment rocked the educational landscape and shook the coalition. But in the end, their work ultimately survived. And this brings us back to the beginning. Coalitions can be fragile, but they are very often the backbone of lasting policy change. And to survive and succeed, coalitions require time, effort, and a lot of personal investment, which can be hard on their members. So we asked Bela and John for a little personal lesson. What is something that you know now that you wish you knew when you first started doing advocacy work? Here are their answers, starting with Bela. It is always about um, looking at and mobilizing and being able to communicate powerfully with diverse people, you know, vertically, horizontally, you name it, anyway. But that ability to communicate with simplicity and power with diverse people on the basis of the evidence that you gather. It's that evidence that you've been a part of yourself that, you know, allows you to to communicate powerfully and uh, very simply because you've seen it and you feel that that is what can move mountains and people. And I think that is the, the energy unleashed together that has um, always for me worked in, in advocacy that has been positive in my life. And I've, I've seen that happen, and it's great when those moments come together that, uh, you know, um, you're able to respect the diversity, can have the ability and the empowerment to communicate powerfully. And that really gets redoubled when you've been a part of the evidence-gathering process that compels you and many more that you work with for action. I mean, for me, that's how I've seen it and done it. John had a somewhat different take. For him, the technical and political skills of leadership are important, of course. But ultimately, what matters more than anything is that he continues to renew his own passion for education. This passion resonates with others who are drawn to work with him in a coalition. And this sense of common purpose serves as the fuel for everyone to keep going when things get difficult. This is how John put it. The one thing I didn't realize um, at the beginning was the value and the position of leadership in everything that we do, in coalition building, in driving reforms, that 
it is about leadership more than anything else. That leader, the passion that they bring, the views that they bring and so on. But then I thought that leadership was something abstract, something out there. And I came just to realize lately that actually a leader leads the way they are from where they are. And that they lead the way they are and the way they think and the way they know. And so focusing on the inside rather than the outside of the leader ends up as a very critical thing, even for coalition building. And so this realization has led me to now get onto a different journey of leadership, not just focusing on the outside and the people that I lead, but focusing on myself. Because when the, the roots are strong, then what we see above the surface also thrives. And as they say, that a shoot is just as strong as its root. We have reached the end of this podcast. Thank you for our guests for such a brilliant discussion. And thank you very much for listening. We hope that this podcast has inspired you to think harder about your own local context and reflect on what you can do to transform it. Please refer to the BNCC case study also available in the Library of Global Public Goods, which takes some of these issues further. And don't forget to hear our other episodes about the experience of Kenya with the literacy and numeracy programs to Somian Pride, of Pakistan with public-private partnerships in education, as well as attempts to improve foundational learning in two Brazilian municipalities, Sobrao and Campus. And we hope to hear your comments, suggestions, and questions through the email lehman.foundation at bsg.ox.ac.uk. Stay tuned and see you again soon.